We are looking at the final battle of Armageddon. Uh, everybody would be happy to know that um, it's not really an asteroid coming to Earth that uh, Bruce Willis uh, saved us all from uh, when he blew up the asteroid with himself and all that other stuff. That hadn't got anything to do with the real battle of Armageddon. Armageddon is a campaign. It is a series of wars. It comes about to lead to a final battle. And uh, we are looking now at the preparation for the final battle and how everything gets together and what's going to happen. Uh, as with any prophecy, the Holy Spirit's indeed our teacher. We're told in John 16 that he'll lead us into all truth and show us things to come. So we, uh, if we want to know, we've got to let the Holy Spirit be our real teacher. We go through and take the facts and the data, put them all together, assemble them together into a model that uh, explains the facts as best as possible. And that's what we're looking at right now, the final uh, issues, the final battle of Armageddon. Before we begin, though, let's take a few moments for prayer to get ourselves ready to study the Word of God. Let us pray. <clears throat> Father, we thank you for your many blessings, for your tests, for your opportunities. Father, we thank you for your totally, completely inspired word that uh, perfect today that it was written, still perfect today, preserved for us throughout all the centuries. And so we can look in it today and we can find help for the present time. Father, I pray that's what we would do today is be able to understand what is getting ready to happen and not just so we'd have the knowledge, but so we would be able to uh, lead people and point people to your amazing plan and the truth behind it. Father, we pray that they'll come to know our Lord Jesus Christ and come to know him in a close and intimate way. Father, we come to together today and we ask the Holy Spirit would be our real teacher that we can grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, we are at stage three in the final battle of Armageddon. How did everything uh, get together? And of course, if there's a stage three, there's probably a stage one somewhere. And the stage one is the invasion of Palestine. The king of the north will come through. It says that he will pass between Jerusalem and the Mediterranean. He'll easily pass through and he'll come and destroy the king of the south. Now, he will take out whoever the leader is of the African continent, basically. I suspect there will be somebody located in Egypt who has been uh, proclaimed the president, if you will, of Africa. And people say, well, that can't happen. But Gaddafi tried it not too long ago, proclaimed himself king of kings and lord of lords and, and uh, king over all of Africa. Of course, he didn't make it very long. But uh, after the rapture is when this can happen. It does not need to happen before the rapture uh, can occur, but it'll happen because it has to be ready for events to occur seven years after the rapture at the end times, the time of the second advent. So he comes and destroys the king of the south. He enlists the Libyans and Ethiopians, which is basically North Africa and Eastern Africa, and they come following at his heels. So the first stage is the invasion of um, Palestine, and that's, that's what we first find out. Now, we're also told, primarily by the book of Daniel, that rumors from the east and from the north get his attention and he turns back with great fury and he will lay siege to Jerusalem. Now, in the middle part of the tribulation, uh, you might remember there's an abomination of desolation set up in the temple. This is the Antichrist in the image of the beast that takes its position in the temple. It says, when you see this, Flee. The Jews are supposed to flee to the mountains and they will move to the north. So that is the instructions for Jews in Jerusalem that find themselves there when the image of the beast is set up. They're supposed to flee to the north. Now, some of them are not going to listen. 
Uh, they've been traditionally hard-headed throughout all of their history. Uh, I'll just track them back to the Exodus generation, uh, and, and their hearts were hardened. It was like every time God manifested himself, a bunch more of them just said no to him. And so they have made a lot of mistakes in their history. But the believers, see, ran to the north. Others stayed in Jerusalem. And yet others in Jerusalem will be converted during the second half of the tribulation. So there will be believers there still in Jerusalem near the time of the end. So the king of the north has gone back because his supply lines are getting ready to get cut off. He has to be supplied, and he is trying to get the treasures of the south and get them back to the north. But if the supply lines are cut off, then he's got to fight to get there. So he turns back to the north and lay siege to Jerusalem. Now he's got some opposition. We've learned from Revelation 10 that the angel Michael takes his stand, right foot on the sea, left foot on the land, means he's facing south. And so he's not going to let the king of the north completely overrun and destroy Jerusalem. He will hold that off. Plus there will be Jews in Jerusalem fighting they are told to fight. The Jews of the first half of the trip flee to the mountains in the north. Those that are converted in the second half of the trip are supposed to stay and fight. And this event is in the sixth year leading up to the seventh anniversary of the time of the rapture. That's the time frame that we are looking at. Now, that is the stage two. Stage one, the invasion of Palestine. Stage two, the king of the north turns back and lays siege to Jerusalem. That takes us, he turns back, that's stage two. Stage three is the siege of Jerusalem. And here we have the setting. What is the setting for the siege of Jerusalem? It's Joel chapter two and the first 13 verses. This is a... It's interesting, this little book, three chapters long, the book of Joel, written hundreds of years before Christ, and yet there are still passages that are yet to be, um, uh, yet to be uh, fulfilled. They're prophetic passages. God has his reputation on the line. When he makes this statement, it is going to be true. Now, it might not happen the next week. Like uh, most human beings demand, they read a, they read a promise and, and uh, they claim a promise and think God's got to keep his promise right now. No, he doesn't. He just needs to keep his promise, and that's what he's going to do. There are passages throughout the Old Testament that deal with this timing of the end just before the second return of our Lord Jesus Christ or second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So in Joel chapter 2, we get passages never been fulfilled, never remotely fulfilled, and yet to be fulfilled. And then it says, blow a trumpet in Zion. Joel 2, 1. Now, this is kind of another evidence, that, uh, or it's another piece of it, that the second advent may occur on the Feast of Trumpets. To me, that's just... Right now, it's not in the realm of, of uh, solid doctrine, but it is a pretty good piece of evidence because here is blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. That takes us to Jerusalem. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. Surely it is near. This is a command for everybody that's there to know the Lord is coming back. The day, surely it is near. The day of the Lord is coming. Surely it is near. Sometimes people take the comments like this and they extrapolate them into the New Testament the day of the Lord is near and they seem to think that like the rapture is imminent at any point in time and yet this is talking about the second advent and the first advent hadn't even occurred yet so when it says near it is basically saying we have gotten closer because we have a new piece of information that fits in to the plan of God. That's how we draw nearer to God. We get more information. We believe it. We get closer to Him. So when it says the day of the Lord is, is near, the day of the Lord was not imminent when Joel was written. And yet some people try to take that same thing statements in the New Testament and say that it was imminent since the day of Pentecost and it just doesn't doesn't work. All right, that's enough preaching on that topic. A day of darkness and gloom. 
a day of clouds and thick darkness. As the dawn is spread over the mountains, so there's a great and mighty people. There's never been anything like it, nor will there ever be a, after it to the years of many generations. You see what this is saying? This is, a, this is something that is unique in history. Joel is not the only place we get verses like this. We'll see them as we move through it. A fire consumes before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but a desolate wilderness behind them, and nothing at all escapes them. Now, this uh, alarm, there's going to there's be a path of destruction that is going to occur. And so, uh, their appearance, like the appearance of horses, like war horses, so they can run with the noise of chariots. They leap on the top of mountains. Uh, <clears throat> like the crackling of a frame consuming the stubble. Like a mighty people arranged for battle. Before them people are in anguish. All faces turn pale. You are looking at a, a battle. And we are looking at the, the final battle of Armageddon. We are getting a picture of that in Joel 2. Now we covered this last week. So I am going to move on to where we left off here. But that kind of gives us the setting. Those who believe during the final battles of the Armageddon campaign are not to flee to the mountains. They're to stay in Jerusalem and fight. We've talked about that just a minute ago. The remnant, which is one-third of the population of Jerusalem, is fighting. And those with faith are claiming the promises of God. Joel 2.20, I'll remove the northern army far from you. Who's besieging Jerusalem during this time? The northern army army. And here's a promise that they need to think about. Zechariah 13, it'll come in about in that land, declares the Lord that two parts in it will be cut off and perish and the third will be left in it and I'll bring the third part through the fire. So about a third of Jerusalem are believers. Two-thirds are not following the beast, the false prophet. Two-thirds of them are not. And so about a third of what's left in Jerusalem will will survive. Unbelieving Jews been deluded into a false sense of security. And God permits and calls together all of Israel's enemies to gather together for the battle. Now, the king of the west is from Greece. I'm jumping down to point 10. And is in the plain of Esdraelon, that's north of Jerusalem, being battled by the sons of Zion... That's the Jews that fled at the middle of the trib when the abomination of desolation was set up. They have moved to the north. The king of the west is now come in to honor his contract that he made with Israel to protect them. So he's coming in and he's fighting the Jews at Megiddo. He is out there in the middle of this, this um, uh, battle and he's, he's going to fight them. Uh, and these are the ones that fled to the mountains at the middle of the trip. Now, that's the Matthew 24 passage when you see the abomination of desolation uh, standing where it should not be. Those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Okay? <clears throat> now, in Revelation 12, 13 to 17, this is the angelic conflict that says that Satan and his forces... When the Jews flee right after the midpoint, whenever they flee, he's going after them. He tries to flood them out. He tries to drown them. And it doesn't work. The ground opens up, drinks the water that is coming after them, and they are protected uh, once again. But Zechariah 9, verse 11 to 17, go ahead and uh, turn there. I don't know if it's quoted in the, written out in the book or not. But this is not a fulfilled prophecy. Uh, they're en route to Jerusalem. They've been trying to kill the unbelieving Jews, but it uh, basically says, As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I've set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Now see, this sounds like the great flood mentioned in Revelation 12 that was unleashed on them. He is, God has delivered them from that flood unleashed by Satan and his forces. Return to the stronghold, O prisoners who have the hope. This very day I am declaring I will restore you double. For I will bend Judah as my bow. 
I will fill the bow with Ephraim, saying that the southern and northern kingdom are going to be uh, reunited at a time, a, a, hidden in the north country, waiting the time. And I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece. Just slip, slip that in there in this passage in Zechariah. Where is the king of the west from? We know he's a man from the past. We know he's out of the different anti-Semitic nations, which include Egypt, uh, Syria, Babylon, Greece, uh, Persia, Greece, and Rome. And this says, why did it say, your sons, O Greece? It looks like that the dictator of the revived Roman Empire, who's fighting with the Jews in the north country, is from Greece. So that helps, gives us a piece of the evidence. And I will make you, this is Zion he's speaking to, like a warrior's sword. Okay? So he's saying that when the Antichrist is fighting against the sons of Zion with the sons of Greece, that's, that's where he's from, that the Lord is going to let them fight and they're going to fight as great warriors. It says, then the Lord will appear over them which is the sons of Greece. And his arrow will go forth like lightning. How's the Antichrist killed? By the breath of his mouth. 2 Thessalonians 2.8 By the breath of the Lord's mouth. So he basically is going to speak and shut up big mouth Antichrist. But this is saying his arrow will go forth like lightning and the Lord God will blow the trumpet there's a trumpet sound again in Zechariah 13, just like in Joel 2. He will blow the trumpet and will march in the storm winds of the south. Now, this is as he enters the battle with the kings of the east at the south end of the Dead Sea. The Lord of hosts will defend them, the sons of Zion. And the sons of Zion will devour and trample on the sling stones. That's the enemies that they are fighting and whatever weapons that they are carrying. They will drink, be boisterous as with wine. They'll be filled like a sacrificial basin, drenched like the corners of the altar. And the Lord their God will save them in that day as the flock of his people. For they are as the stones of a crown sparkling in his land. What comeliness and beauty will be theirs. Grain will make the young men flourish and new wine, the virgins. Now, this what this is saying is that this is a major battle. There's a battle between the Jews north of Jerusalem, the Antichrist, the sons of Greece. Okay, they're battling. The Lord will show up. He will shut the that king up with just the breath of his mouth, as we learn from other passages, and then he is going to defeat. The, go do battle, hand-to-hand -hand battle with the kings of the east at the south end of the Dead Sea. So when the Lord shows up, that's that's what's getting ready to happen. But look what it, God will save them in that day as the flock of his people. And what is the Lord going to do? He's going to shepherd the flock of God, says with a rod of iron, for a thousand years. This is connecting with the, the millennial kingdom. Now, 11 is really where we left off. I know it took a lot of time to get there, but that's all right. This is the, the final battle of Armageddon. It's amazing how people talk about Armageddon, and they talk about Armageddon in Iraq. Nope, not going to be in Iraq. We have definitive geographical areas where these final battles are going to take place. People keep saying, well, Armageddon are going to be over here with, with whatever. No. It, Armageddon has a definite geographical locale. It is going to happen. It is a full-out war. It is going to go on for years, culminating in the final battle. The kings of the east are assembled in the valley of Jehoshaphat, south of the Dead, south of the Dead Sea. This is where they have come. The Lord has dried up the uh, Euphrates River. They have been coming from way over here off the map. Uh, China, India, Japan, uh, Mongolia, those areas, and they have killed a third of mankind, which is killing Muslims, 
uh, and ended up right here at the south end of the Dead Sea. Here we are back in Joel again. Joel chapter 3. See, prophecy is so beautiful because you get a flow of thought in one book like in Joel. We just saw Joel chapter 2 with blow the trumpet. And we, now we see this flow going through 2 and 3, connected with Zechariah 13 over here. And then um, uh, there's other paths. It'll connect on with Zechariah 12 and 14 before we're done. Joel 3 says, For behold, in those days at that time when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem. Now see, he's establishing a time tag here. When is he going to restore these fortunes? He says, I will gather all the nations... Now, some will say that's whenever he brought them back from Babylon. Okay, Some will say that uh, they'll make up other times, but he, he says, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Then I'll enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my inheritance, Israel, whom they have scattered, whom they have scattered among the nations. All the nations are responsible for this. And they have divided up my land. One of the reasons for judgment on Israel is people wanting land promised to Abraham. People say, well, that was an old covenant. Well, there's a... I can't remember the man's name. He did a whole lot of work, presented his paper at the pre-trib study group, and he basically was an attorney who had researched land rights in the Palestine area, and he basically, uh, his, his documentation and everything proves that the Jews owned that piece of land legally, not just by promise from Abraham, but they legally owned that piece of land. And he's gone through various courts and things trying to show this, but they, they have a full right to that uh, land not just because it comes from God, which it does, the only thing that really counts, but they've also got a legal claim to that land that they're in. And any time somebody starts messing with a land promised to Abraham, they are headed for trouble. It's been that way throughout all of history. Jehoshaphat, by the way, means Jehovah judges. Yahweh judges. Joel 3.12 is where it is used. Joel 3, 11 and 12, Hasten and come down, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. See, this was not fulfilled in 70 A.D. Couldn't have been, because that was Rome, and Rome alone. This is all the nations. Unless you want to turn the Bible into flowery, uh, flowery, allegorical, metaphorical figures of speech. If you want to try to do that, you can do anything you want to do. But it's not legitimate. But here, gather yourselves there. Bring down, O Lord, your mighty ones. Let the nations be aroused. Come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Kings of the East, remember? Nations that have destroyed the Muslims en route to get there. They are basically polytheistic nations that have come there. And he, they. what's been one of the Jews' biggest battles throughout all of their history? Worshiping other gods. Why did he start the Ten Commandments off with, you shall have no other gods besides me? And what did the Jews do? Like they did everything else. They went and started worshiping other gods. And so he is, uh, as he said, he's a jealous god. Because there is only one God, and we are not Him. Now, the Lord is invisibly involved in this part of the fight. These are things that are going on prior to His arrival on the Mount of Olives when He splits it in two. But He is, nevertheless, involved in the fight. Uh, the Jews in Jerusalem are, are uh, under siege. They are fighting in Jerusalem. A lot of them in the north are in caves. They are fighting. God has a way of intervening in history without, without a direct intervention. He can do all kinds of amazing things without overruling anybody's volition in the process. Zechariah 12 says, In that day, 
declares the Lord, I'll strike every horse with bewilderment and his rider with madness. He does this and he's not seen. He's not visible. I'll watch over the house of Judah while I strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. Then the clans of Judah will say in their hearts, a strong support for us are the inhabitants of Jerusalem through the Lord of armies, their God. In that day, I'll make the clans of Judah like a fire pot among pieces of wood and a flaming torch among sheaves. So they will consume on the right hand and on the left all the surrounding peoples, while the inhabitants of Jerusalem again dwell in their own sites in Jerusalem. The Lord will also save the tents of Judah first. Interesting comment here. So that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem will not be magnified above Judah. House of David, see, is going to be the one on the throne for a thousand years. In that day, the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And the one who is feeble among them in that day will be like David. And the house of David will be like God, like the angel of the Lord before them. And in that day, I will set about to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. Now, who all's come against Jerusalem? Ready for this final battle. You have the king of the west leading the European forces. Okay? You have the king of the south, what it destroyed, but the Ethiopians and Libyans from the south had joined forces with the king of the north, and they're headed back to Jerusalem. You have the kings of the east at the south end of the Dead Sea. You've got representatives from all the nations there. And what are they trying to do? Kill Jews. They want to take out all of the followers of the God of the heaven. That's what they want to do. Why? Because there's a whole lot of promises left to them that are not yet fulfilled. If you connect this into the angelic conflict, what would Satan love to do? He likes to see every Jew on the planet dead. That's what he wants. Because then he would say, well, how are you going to fulfill this? The Lord actually said, well, he could raise up sons of Abraham out of these rocks if he wanted to. He is a creator. You know, that's who, that's who he is and what he does. But still, God is letting this play out because God is fair. We may not understand his fairness at times, but he is indeed fair. And he's given Satan a shot at, at doing this. Now, it's time for the reaping. This In these passages, when you connect Joel 3... And Revelation 14 are, to me, just phenomenal. Uh, because the words that are used here. You might remember when we went through Revelation 14, verse 14 to 20 are about two reapings. 14 to 16, he swung his sickle over the earth and the earth was reaped. That's the rapture. That's when the righteous are taken out, the wicked are left. 17 to 20, he swings his sickle into the earth and reaps the earth and he is going to take out the wicked and leave the righteous to inherit the millennial kingdom two separate reapings now let's read Joel 3 actually let's read Revelation 14 first verse 17 to 20 another angel came out of the temple which is in heaven he had a sharp sickle then another angel, the one who has the power over fire, came out from the altar, and he called out with a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Put in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth because her grapes are ripe. The vine of the earth, who's that? Israel. So the angel swung his sickle to the earth, gathered the clusters from the vine of the earth, threw them into the great, great wine press of the wrath of God. The vine of the, vine of the earth is not Israel. The vine of the earth is the, that which grows out of the earth and is not believers. And the wine press was trodden outside the city and blood came out from the wine press up to the horse's bridles for a distance of 200 miles. That's Revelation. Now let's look at Joel 3. Verse 13, put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. These sound remotely familiar. <laughs> Come tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their wickedness is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. 
The sun and moon grow dark. What happens? What do we know happens with the bowl judgment? The sun and the moon grow dark, and the stars lose their brightness. The Lord roars from Zion. He utters his voice from Jerusalem. And the heavens and the earth tremble. You remember the bowl judgments? We've got to put all these things together to get the real picture because the bowl judgments, the sixth bowl, is an earthquake that splits the city into three parts. And it covers and destroys all the islands. It's an unprecedented earthquake. There's one that starts the trip that's unprecedented, one that ends it that is, that is beyond. Uh, I don't think they've got a, a magnitude scale that would even remotely uh, record that. But what happens, the heavens and the earth tremble, but the Lord is a refuge for His people and a stronghold of the sons of Israel. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God, dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain, so that Jerusalem will be holy and strangers will pass through it no more. What is a stranger about? Unbelievers. Why will strangers pass through it no more? Because at the second advent, with the separation of the sheep and the goats, there's not going to be any unbelievers left. They'll all be gone. So everybody will be a brother and will be able to pass through Jerusalem. But the keys here is put in the sickle. The harvest is ripe. What do we get in Revelation? It's time for the harvest. Connects the dots on these two. Grace still offers another opportunity to repent and believe. Our God is so gracious. People look at the Old Testament and see His hand of righteousness come out. What is righteous? What is the righteousness of God? It's when it was displayed toward Nahab and Abihu in Leviticus chapter 10. And they offered strange fire on the altar for the burnt offering the first day when they started the offerings and God struck them dead right then. That's His righteousness. Anything less than that is grace. And yet people don't see that. Don't see that at all. He had to display His righteousness at different times in history to show us what His righteousness really is. All sin is abhorrent to God. And the sons of Aaron... We're flagrantly disobedient, and um, he took took them out. That's his righteousness. But the rest of it's grace. Now, does God offer an opportunity to repent and believe? We know in Revelation 16, we've just been through that, the pouring out of the bold judgments says, and still they did not repent. But they blasphemed the God of the heaven. Unbelievers can get so hard-headed it is, it is beyond imagination. Zechariah 12, verse 10 and 11. I find that interesting because in our day and age, we have people who are unbelievers and they, they will tell you what free thinkers they are. And they will tell you how they take evidence and they take data and they look at it honestly. They look at it with intellectual honesty and we make these decisions and they, they are not remotely open to what God has to say because that wouldn't, that's religious. I'm scientific is what they claim arrogantly and they don't have the first understanding of science. When you define science in such a way as to leave God out, you made a mistake with your presupposition. Science is, for something to be scientific, it has to be observable, measurable, and repeatable. That's the definition. Now, who was there when God created the heavens and the earth other than God? They weren't there. So how is it going to be observable? can't do it. You can try to work backwards. You can work backwards and get some model, but nobody was there. Observable, measurable. They're still trying to measure it. And repeatable. How are you going to create a new heavens and earth? Unless you're the Almighty Himself who has the power to do it. See, they, they, they leave God out of their presuppositions. Therefore, to me, it's not scientific. 
Some of the greatest discoveries in the history of science came about because people were seeking to know how God did things. That was at the foundation of it. Then you move God out of the picture, and you have all kinds of, of a mess. Anyway, preaching again. It happens from time to time. Stage four. Stage four. Now, what do we got? Invasion of Palestine from the king of the north. Defeats the king of the south. Supply lines cut off. Moves back to Jerusalem to lay siege of, to Jerusalem. Siege of Jerusalem, stage three. What do we have? We have the king of the west of the sons of Greece in Megiddo, north, north of Jerusalem. King of the north, laying siege to Jerusalem. Kings of the east gathered at the south end of the Dead Sea. Now, that's what we're, that's what we're leading up to. Stage four is grace, though. All armies are ready to hit Jerusalem. A great earthquake has just occurred. This is Revelation 16. There were flashes of lightning, sounds and peals of thunder. There was a great earthquake. Listen to the description of this again. Such as there had not been since man came to be on the earth. So great an earthquake was it and so mighty. The great city was split into three parts and the cities of the nations fell. This is just before the second advent. So you got armies outside of Jerusalem, but you still have nations. People, all the inhabitants of the nations didn't leave. There are armies left. So it says, what happens? The cities of the nations fell. This is an earthquake that shakes the world, literally. And Babylon the Great was remembered before God, which is chapter 17 and 18. He gives us a description. To give her the cup of the wine of his fierce wrath, and every island fled away, and mountains were not found. This is the normal mountains. We know Mount Zion is still there, the Mount of Olives. And we know Megiddo is still there. But the mountains, it looks like the Himalayas fell. The Alps fell. Wow, think of all the mountain, great mountain chains. Mount Everest might be climbable by the common person by the time this is done. Not 30,000 feet above sea level. Uh, but just, yeah, this is a massive earthquake. The tribulation is over. When all this comes together and everything goes dark, the tribulation is over. Matthew 20, for the parallel passage, when you see that and sign, that is a parallel passage. And immediately after the tribulation of those days. Important words of the Lord. All these things come together immediately after on the 2,521st day after the rapture. The situation for the Jews is hopeless. They have been fighting. They've been fighting with the assistance of Michael. But from a human perspective, it is totally hopeless for the Jews. But the, what are the Jews supposed to do? They're supposed to pray. Joel 2. Here we are back in Joel again. Blow a trumpet in Zion. Consecrate a fast. Proclaim a solemn assembly. Gather the people. Sanctify the congregation. Assemble the elders. Gather the children and the nursing infants. And look at this next line. Let the bridegroom come out of his room and the bride out of her bridal chamber. What are they supposed to pray, right? <laughs> Consecrate a fast, proclaim a, a, a solemn assembly. Who's the bridegroom? It's the Lord himself. Where is he? At his father's house, preparing a place. Who's with him? Us. The bride. And the bride out of her bridal chamber. In other words, Come come back, Lord, is what they're saying. <laughs> Let the priest, the Lord's ministers, weep between the porch and the altar, and let them say, Spare the people, O Lord. Do not make your inheritance a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they among the people say, Where is their God? 
Now, this is the prayer just before the second advent. And, you know, it's interesting. The believing Jews, they're going to know all this. They're going to, they're going to know it. it they're, they're fighting because they've chosen to believe in the spite of massive opposition. The Lord's going to respond to their prayers. Joel 2, 18 and 19. Next verses. Then the Lord will be zealous for his land and will have pity on his people and the Lord will answer and say to his people, Behold, I am going to send you grain, new wine, and oil and you'll be satisfied and full with them. But look at this last phrase. I will never again make you a reproach among the nations. That is millennial. Never again will Israel be a reproach among the nations. They have been for a big part of their history. They've had seven major uh, peoples come after them. Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, and the revived Roman Empire. They have had major people groups come after them. But God has protected them. And he said there will be a time, never going to happen again, a supernatural darkness will cover the earth. Matthew twenty four twenty nine. Immediately after the tribulation of those days shall the sun be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars shall fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Isaiah 60, verse 2. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, and gross darkness the people. How does darkness cover the whole earth unless it's supernatural? Joel 2.31 the sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. What's going to happen with that sixth bowl judgment? The lights are going to go out right there on the 2,520th day and it's time for the Lord. Now look at Zechariah 14.6. See, here's four passages that say, talks to us about a darkness. It will come about in that day there will be no light. The luminaries will dwindle. It looks like even the artificial light is going to dwindle. Batteries are running out. The Duracells have dirred their cell. They are done, done. For it will be a unique day which is known to the Lord. Neither day nor night. What's happened? The sun's gone nova. We know about that. We, we've read about these judgments of the trib. It'll be neither day nor night, but it will come about that at evening time there will be light. What's the time? It's the time of the second advent. The day is over. The 2520th day is over. After immediately, doesn't it say? Immediately after the tribulation of those days. He, all the lights are gone. The Lord, though, there will be light. Because the Lord's going to come and light it up. It's interesting how the light of the world becomes a different kind of light of the world, isn't it? The armies of Israel's enemies panic. Zechariah 12, verse 4. In that day, declares the Lord, I'll strike every horse with bewilderment and his rider with madness. Their great military organization falls apart. We know it's a great military organization from Joel 2 passage, which says they march in line and do not deviate from their paths. They are highly trained soldiers. They're not a ragtag bunch of, of um, uh, guerrilla fighters. This is high, highly trained armies. Suddenly comes the light from the Lord Jesus Christ, Zechariah 14, 7. A unique day known only to the Lord. At evening time there will be light. Psalm 97 seems to be written just for this occasion. The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the many islands be glad. What? They just all sank, didn't they? Let the many islands be glad. Clouds and thick darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Fire goes before him and burns up his adversaries round about. His lightnings lit up the world. The earth saw and trembled. This is not a normal storm. 
The mountains melted like wax at the presence of the Lord. At the presence of the Lord, the whole earth. The heavens declare his righteousness. What does it say? Stars falling out of heaven? I mean, just all of this coming together. And it looks like Psalm 97 kind of brings it together. And all the peoples have seen his glory. Didn't it just say elsewhere? Every eye shall behold him. Let all those be ashamed who serve graven images. Who boast themselves of idols. Worship him, all you gods, little g. Zion heard this and was glad, and the daughters of Judah rejoiced. Because of your judgments, O Lord, for you are most high over all the earth. You are exalted above all gods. We sing songs about that all the time, don't we? Hate evil, you who love the Lord, who preserves the souls of his godly ones, who delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Light is sown like seed for the righteous and gladness for the upright in heart. Be glad in the Lord, you righteous one, and give thanks to his holy name. Matthew twenty four thirty, and then the sign of the Son of Man. What's just happened in the last verse? Immediately after the tribulation of those days. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. When he comes, every eye will see him. All the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with great power and great glory. Now he's there to fight. When he comes back, he's coming to fight. Zechariah 14, verse 3, Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. Revelation 19. See the connection? Prophecies in the Old Testament... Hundreds of years apart. All coming together at this one point in history. From his mouth comes a sharp broadsword. The six foot sword. So that with it he may strike down the nations. He'll rule them with a rod of iron. He treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh is a name written. King of kings. Lord of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun. He cried out with a loud voice saying to all the birds that fly in mid-heaven, Assemble yourself for the great supper of God, so that you might eat the flesh of kings and commanders and mighty men and horses and those who sit on them, flesh of men, both free and slaves, small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. This is the second advent. What a powerful picture that John gives us through the inspired Word of God. And you know mere words are not going to capture this. There's no way to really capture what John actually saw. First, he delivers the remnant. See, there's a third of Jerusalem left as the remnant, right? By splitting the Mount of Olives, Zechariah 14.4. And in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley. So half of the mountain will move toward the north and the other half toward the south. I suspect when this is all said and done, you could put a plumb line on it and a compass and it would be perfectly split just exactly like this says. God makes statements like this and then he does them. Uh, it's kind of like he's, he controls earthquakes, doesn't he? Sometimes you say, well, God controls earthquakes and tornadoes and all those other things. No, that's Mother Nature. Excuse me. It's Father God. The Jews are to pass through this new valley. Zechariah 14, 5. You will flee by the valley of my mountains. Now it's not one mountain, but two. For the valley of the mountains will reach to Atzel. Literally, it will reach to the mountains of he was a descendant of Jonathan, son of Saul of the tribe of Benjamin. It's an area north of Jerusalem, all the way across the mountain chain. And he says, it'll reach to Atzel. Yes, you'll flee, just as you fled before the earthquake in the days of Isaiah, king of Judah. 
Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. Who's that? That's his bride and his army in Revelation 19. This is Zechariah 14. Now, this is quite a picture, isn't it? He is going to set foot on the Mount of Olives, split it in half. The Jews are going to run through and escape. Kind of like they did a sea back in the time of Moses when he parted that. This time, he parts a mountain. Who is this God we serve? Is he not King of kings and Lord of lords? Indeed, he is. And he's getting ready to come back and prove it on a global scale in a way that is totally irrefutable. Nobody really could argue with it that had any kind of intellectual honesty. But the sad thing is, shortly thereafter, as all the unbelievers, because there still will be, will be gathered together and cast into the lake of fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. That's how he will establish the millennial kingdom. All Israel at that point will be saved. First time in all of its history. What a glorious time that will be, and we get to look forward to it because we are special as the church, as the bride of the Almighty. Let us pray. Father, thank you again for this day, for your blessings, your tests, your opportunities. And Father, thank you for your word. It's amazing to see how the details fit together in an amazing plan that you have laid out. You've laid it out with detail. You have risked your reputation. And yet, Father, we who have faith know that uh, you will carry it out just as you said. Father, we thank you that we have a God who we trust implicitly. Sometimes our faith may be shaky a little, but every time it is, let us think of what you have done in the past and what you promised to do in the future and for all of eternity. In that, we can take our comfort. Thank you for being you. In Jesus' name, amen.